podcast on this Sunday evening. Uh, tonight we have another guest, uh, but as always, we have the usual face of Peter Ray Allison. Good evening, everyone. And our guest tonight, Travis Legg. Hello. Thanks so, for having me. Travis, who are you? What do you do? What are you doing here? What's your thing? Uh, well, uh, my name is Travis Legg. I am a uh, freelance uh, game developer, designer, writer, um, and yeah, I'm here to talk to you about uh, lore of the traditions for, <coughs> excuse me, for Mage the Ascension 20th Anniversary Edition, which is currently running on Kickstarter. So, okay, for, for those of us uh, who, I've heard Pete talk about Mage numerous times, um, like I think he talks about it pretty much on every single podcast it's get, it gets a mention it's a great game yeah it's a fantastic uh, game for all of us noobs who have never played it um what is it uh explain sure so the short short version of what mage the ascension is is it's uh, a game set in the world of darkness uh, so the same setting uh, occupied by like vampire the masquerade and werewolf the apocalypse uh, in Mage the Ascension, it's the gothic punk world, uh, you know, the the, um, the world outside your window, but the shadows are a bit deeper, the world's a bit darker. And uh, in Mage, you play uh, mages, you play characters whose avatars, their spiritual selves have awakened to understand the, the true potential of reality and the true nature of, of their interaction with reality. And through using a paradigm, which is a set of beliefs uh, involving like an instrument, instruments and, and uh, activities and, and your belief structure, you're able to impose your will on the universe or, or in layman's terms, you're able to use magic. Um, in the sort of background, the meta plot of the world, uh, there are different factions of mages all who believe their way of seeing the world is is the best way toward ascension the best way for humanity to move beyond their basic uh potential and become something more um and those factions have been engaged off and on for the last five and a half centuries in what's known as the ascension war and kind of the shadow conflict over belief and uh, the traditions, the council of the, the traditions mentioned in lore of the traditions is the council of nine mystic traditions, uh, which are a group of magical orders founded in the 1500s, um, for, late 1400s who uh, try to stick to kind of what we think commonly in Western society as magic, and they want to preserve and proliferate that magic throughout the world. Um, they're opposed on the other side by the technocracy, which is a group of mages who uh, prioritize reason and science and and think that rationality should guide the world. And the other two factions in the Ascension War are the Nefandi, who uh, believe in entropy and destruction and, and uh, the ultimate oblivion of the universe and worship dark, horrible uh, entities. And the Marauders, who are largely uh, sort of divorced from reality by their own um, 
shattered consciousnesses. Basically, their minds become overwhelmed with the pressures of all the power that comes along with awakening um, or the temptations of seeking more power. And their minds eventually go into a state called quiet where they no longer are able to engage with actual consensual reality, the, the, the baseline reality that everyone else engages with on the same level. So they start to believe, essentially they develop delusions and start to believe those delusions so much that those delusions bleed into reality around them. And of course, so the traditions are sort of beset on all sides by these other factions. Um, that's kind of the basis of the Ascension War. Uh, and that's what carried the meta plot through the first three editions of Mage. When the 20th anniversary edition came out, uh, a lot of those meta plot elements were set up as sort of optional toggles that a storyteller could uh, use or ignore within their game. Uh, some storytellers might run a game where the Ascension War is effectively over. The traditions have lost that war, and they're kind of on the ropes in, in this sort of fighting a guerrilla war at this point to try to keep their beliefs alive. Uh, another storyteller might run a game where the Ascension War is hot and heavy and the game is focused entirely around that conflict. And some might run a game where the uh, a couple of the factions of the Ascension War maybe have decided to put aside their differences, realizing that the real threat to human stability is human stupidity. And so how, how do they... How do they usher in a, a new era? How do they pull humanity from the brink of apocalypse um, when humanity seems so dead set on lighting the planet on fire and passing around diseases? Yeah, what I find so fascinating about Mage is that um, it's a game based on belief. Like, even though it's about no, it's called Mage. The there's no kind of one way that each faction does their magic. It's all about kind of imposing your will and like no. Like, for example, the vast differences within the tradition is not just like the Harry Potter style magic you see uh, that the Order of Hermes used. You've got everything from the spiritual based um, dream speakers all the way through to the hypertech of the Sons of Ether. And I know the system can happily accept all them together. Yeah, it's really quite interesting the way that um, the way that it's built out, because there's sort of from a system perspective you know as as a player the way you're engaging it is there are nine spheres of magic each of these spheres governs a particular aspect of reality uh so for example correspondence uh governs distances and the connections between things uh life governs living things forces governs governs energy um matter governs matter things along those lines but how you and and your ratings in those spheres will determine what within the boundaries of the system your mage is capable of however the thing that really determines how your magic works and what your magic looks like and what effects you can do uh, is much more reliant on your paradigm the set of beliefs you use uh, the set of tools that you use when you're casting a spell. Um, a good example I like to uh, to give people when I'm talking about it is there's a group, uh, one of the traditions is called the Virtual Adepts. They deal with computers, uh, computing, calculations, things along those lines. 
and there is a realm that they um, visit called the digital web. And it's sort of a, a, a virtual representation of the universe. Some of them argue it's the fundamental actual basis of reality that grows from the digital web. But um, they access this through a computer uh, using correspondence magic at the end of the day. Um, if you're playing a verbena who is uh, sort of more of your Wiccan, um, you know, old ways, European type witchcraft type of magic, they might know correspondence too, but that doesn't necessarily mean that their tools are going to allow them to access the digital web, right? Because to their mind, it's about uh, following the arcane connections between a piece of your hair and you so that I can then channel a healing spell to you from across the planet, something along those lines, right? So they're, so they're very, you are limited more by what your character's beliefs are than you are by the actual traits on your sheet. And then as you uh, move closer to ascension, as you gain enlightenment, uh, your arate increases and you uh, can start to work around those tools and eventually start to put those tools away and just work your will through willpower. You can also learn other ways of getting there. Um, you know, so a verbena may learn a meditative practice that lets them eventually ac access the digital web. So there's different ways to uh, skin that particular cat. And to me, a lot of the fun of mage is identifying what your character's belief structure is and then how do you make that magic work within that belief structure and what do you do to support that belief structure? And that's a lot of fun. That's that's a, that's a, a big part of the fun for the game for me. <laughs> I remember, sir, I'm not, I'm, maybe I've cro I might be cross wires, but I remember Pete saying um, there's sort of a, the way the magic works is you, it's, oh, maybe I've got this wrong, but it's something like you, you, you can't show it in front of people, real people. Uh, it's got to be sort of kind of, uh, you know, subtle, subtle. Yeah. Yeah. You want to, you want to hide your magic in coincidence as much as you can. And the reason being is because, uh, reality itself, like each mage has their will that they are imposing on reality, but reality itself has a resistance to that. Okay. The consensual reality that everybody agrees upon. If you think of it in terms of like individual will, um, you're not just like each individual person, the sleepers they're referred to as in the game or the masses. If you're talking about technocracy, people who are not awakened, they all, all of their beliefs sort of create this tapestry of reality that creates a resistance against the lone mage. So you're not just one person saying, I believe this. So it's therefore true. You're one person arguing, I believe this. So it's therefore true against the sort of subconscious belief of everyone in your vicinity, right? So when when you push that too far and too hard, reality pushes back through a form of energy called paradox that you generate. And paradox can cause everything from spells to misfire or work in a way other than what you intended, all the way to direct injury to the mage, all the way to... Uh, reality behaving in strange ways in, in an effort to try to sort of iron out the wrinkles you've created. So uh, one thing I've, I've done to players uh, <laughs> is have your skin turn inside out. 
Oh, uh, wow. Or, <laughs> or, uh, or, for example, everything, any, um, everything flows backwards in your presence, including liquids and, like, electrical currents. So you just, so you just have to kind of sit in a room with no plumbing and no lights for a week while reality <laughs> fixes itself around. Um, is there a so table? Like, is there like a, a is there like a hazard table for this sort of thing, or is it literally whatever comes from your the DM's mind? There is a table. There's actually a couple different ways that paradox can manifest, and one of the things that's very cool about. Um, the way that Mage 20th Anniversary Edition works is once again, just like with the meta plot, the system itself has some toggles too. Because over the course of the twenty now twenty eight years, I think since Mage First Edition came out, uh, there's been different iterations of these rules. So some of these things you can turn on and off. So there's like one table if you just want the simple, straightforward. There's one table. It's basically just like you take damage, describe it narratively. There you go on your way, right? Um, but there's also, you can get, there's more optional rules where you can get much more granular about it and they have suggestions and you always have the freedom as the, as the storyteller to, uh, describe this effect, how you feel is most narrative and it's encouraged. Uh, same thing with the, the casting. When you're talking about your paradigms, you know, people are encouraged to narrate. It's not just, I wave my magic wand and the spell happens. You know, I draw forth this wand, which is crafted from you and is you know uh and has enochian symbols on it and i say my incantation of you know uh hocus pocus and fire sheets out the end of my wand like it's you're you're living in that in the descriptions um so yeah i mean you can run it fairly straightforward where it's just like this value is x but it, it really comes to life when you start bringing in those narrative aspects, regardless of how complicated you're making those those rules at the table. Yeah, when I when I run mage, it's kind of like how to describe it is more important than the stats. Like, okay, how does your character do that? How does it fit in with their paradigm? And then ask, how does that look coincidental? How can you make it seem subtle? And at the point the the player starts scratching the heads and going, ah. Right, <laughs> right. I mean, I, th- I think that the best description I've ever heard of paradox and paradigm in action is basically you've got a bowl of water and, like, they're obviously dropping it, dropping, like, a little drop of water into that bowl and sending out the ripples. That's coincidental, you know, without witnesses. Slamming your hand into the, wa- into the water and letting it splash everywhere, that's vulgar. Yeah. yeah, yeah which and- is kind of fairly kind of an abstract representation of what you're doing with the with the reality and how reality fights back right when you're using coincidental magic you're sort of nudging uh the possible you're you're couching your magic in things that might happen somebody shoots a gun at me that bullet in the gun happens to hit a cigarette case in my pocket absolutely coincidental never mind that i used forces magic to move that bullet to that uh to that specific spot or maybe i used matter to create the flask in my pocket um whatever spell you use to get there that's within the bounds of coincidence however somebody shoots a gun at me and i hold my hand up and the bullet stops in the middle of the air that's vulgar and there's probably going to be a a fairly severe backlash when i do it 
So um, how does so like you're in an alleyway, you're getting mugged. The guy with the gun shoots at you. Why is there? Because I'm assuming. Well, it dep- I guess it depends on your sort of your character alignment. I'm not sure how it works for like 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 D and D or whatever. But like if if you just stop the bullet and then kill the guy, you know, or is there still paradox because he's not going to tell anybody? Or how does it how does that work? There's absolutely still paradox because uh, reality itself has a passive resistance to it, so, which is why you have. Uh, there's three kinds of magic, effectively. You have coincidental magic, which falls within the bounds. The events fall within the bounds of reality. Whether or not your cause is not, but the events do. Um, oh, they got a flat tire. Uh, oh, they just missed with the bullet. Um, vulgar without witnesses is uh, the second sort of stage of severity, which means I throw a fireball uh, in a empty parking lot with nobody around to see it. Reality itself says, you can't throw a fireball. Stop that. And gives you paradox. <laughs> um, <laughs> but when you have sleeper witnesses present, reality and all of their individual belief are going, you can't do that. Stop it. And giving you more paradox. So you've like. basically got a game mechanic that is fighting against your powers. So basically... A more overt, I think it's the best way, overt powers. Right, it's 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 trying to keep you into this box of what is acceptable reality. Now, there's some uh, things that mages can do to work around this. Aside from just focusing on coincidental magic, with many mages do, or just saying screw it, I'm going to take the paradox, which many mages also do. Um, you can build a sanctum, an area where you have attuned that area to your beliefs so strongly that your magic is considered coincidental in it. If you put together a group of enough followers to assist you with a ritual and they believe in your in your paradigm, it becomes coincidental so long as it's within that specific group. There's even reality zones. What is considered coincidental here right now in you know where I'm sitting in Rockford, Illinois, USA is not the same as what might be considered coincidental say, in downtown Dubai, where they have much more common hypertech on the streets in the really real world than we have in the United States. And it's not going to be the same as what might be considered coincidental in, you know, a South American region with uncontacted tribes. Their natural reality is going to be different than ours. So something that you might do here in in the United States that is uh, absolutely a coincidental effect might be vulgar in one of those other locations because the the dominant reality locally doesn't accept it as normal. So as you're as you're leveling up, you're obviously getting more powerful. Mm-hmm. Um does that mean that you're you are being able to do coincident um coincidental manic, ma- magic is easier or uh, uh, how cuz I'm assuming I'm guessing, depending on on one story, like any RPG, you can sort of make it out. Uh, sorry, any tabletop RPG, you can sort of go whatever direction you want. But you know, you're trying to uh, awaken the sleepers or, or make people sort of kind of transcend into this sort of uh, new world of magic. Um, is is that you sort of as you as you get sort of up when you up your level? If, I, I don't even if you go if you go up levels and up, but as you sort of increase <laughs> um, in your level, or whatever, 
does that mean sort of like you can persuade more people or how, how does that work? Well, you gain power. Um, it's a, it's an experience based system and it's a purchase. You purchase things ad hoc. So for example, if I wanted to become just more powerful with magic in general, I would raise my RT. Now there's a process called the seeking that you generally go through for that, where you have to go on a spiritual quest before you can spend that experience. Um, but once that's done, you spend the experience points, your RT increases, you get to roll more dice when you make, when you cast spells. Uh, you can also raise your spheres so you can have more powerful magical effects. Uh, as far as gaining influence and, and gaining uh, control of areas of belief and things along those lines, that's really kind of where the story can be told if that's where you want to focus it, right? Uh, you don't just buy followers or gain followers like at a certain level. You would have to go out and tell stories about what are you doing to gain these people's trust, to gain these people's involvement. Um, there's a lot of great stories uh, that I've, I've been a part of uh, that are focused on like a street level campaign where a group of mages is in just a rundown neighborhood and their whole uh, plan is let's revitalize this neighborhood. Let's give these people something to believe in. And then in turn, their paradigm starts to become more uh, flexible in that area because people are, are trusting them. Right. So when, one of the big kind of rules of the societies of mages is you don't just go, you don't shake people awake. You don't throw around. One of the reasons they don't, uh, they don't advocate throwing around vulgar magic is yes, paradox is a problem, but also when you throw magic around and scare the sleepers, you get things like the inquisition. So, you know, it's best to just not do that. Um, and um, what's the inquisition? Oh, oh, obviously, like, like the, the the Spanish Inquisition. Right? Right, okay. <laughs> like, it's still going like, strong here today. Yeah, you get people showing up and burning you as a witch because you made you turned somebody into a newt. Well, you know, maybe maybe you shouldn't turn people into newts is kind of the the catchy headliner. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, each individual mage has to deal with that walking that line between seeking like ascension, which is seeking a greater wisdom. And seeking greater, greater power, which often leads to a hubris, which kind of takes them off the track of ascension, right? Because you have to consider when you, your magic is an act of will um, that requires a great deal of pride. And it's very easy for a mage to, to go too far toward pride and cut off their ability to really become more enlightened because they're so wrapped up in their, in their power they don't really think about the enlightenment part. Um, so there's a lot of fun things to play with in that as well. Sounds absolutely fascinating. I have to say, Pete, I think we're probably going to have to do a one shot at some point in time. <laughs> Happy to, I, yeah, because yeah, I've, uh, I've I've heard you talk about it before, and I'm a, I'm I'm quite a I'm a creature of habit when it comes to my games. It always used to be. It's war games, ones with fa fancy little miniatures and, and, and things like that. And then I sort of played Call of Cthulhu once and went, this is completely out of my comfort zone. This is just not what I do ever. And I loved it. And then I remember Pete talking about this and kind of going, that sounds really interesting. And now having heard you explain it all, I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm going to give that a go. <laughs> I, I highly recommend it. It is a lot of fun. And if you're looking yeah. for something like, like there's a couple different ways... You know, I have a bit of a D&D &D background myself. Uh, my first game was Dungeons & Dragons with my older brother when I was just a, a, a wee little squirt. Um, so uh, 
I have some thoughts and ideas and suggestions about like transitioning from D and D over to Mage. You know, if you're a fan of playing wizards, for example, uh, you may want to look at the Order of Hermes because they will feel familiar to you. Um, if you are a fan of playing like uh, more martial characters, um, you may want to look at uh, the Akashiana. They are uh, a good uh, a, a good martial tradition. Uh, the Euthanatos also very good for that. Um, yeah, so I mean, there's a couple of different things where I would suggest, you know, if you like rogues and you like solving traps and puzzles and things like that, virtual adepts might be might be the way to look at. Uh, you know, not to say that they're one to one allegories by any stretch, but I think you will find familiar ground in those. If yeah, kind of, the way to think of the different <laughs> traditions within the um, traditions is that they are more like different belief systems, different paradigms. Like, for example, the Akashiana are very kind of um, Eastern philosophies, um, so Taoism, Buddhism, and so forth. Um, Oops, and like you no, know, whilst the uh, the Etherites is very kind of hypertech and gadget driven, um, steampunk is a common uh, aesthetic associated with them. But I've always seen them as kind of gadgeteers and like the stereotypical mad scientist, where there's coming, let's do science because it works. Right. Yeah. They they've uh, especially in 20th anniversary edition that a lot of steampunk gets associated with the suns or with the uh, the Society of Ether now as is, is they're called. Um, but, uh, I've always found them to have like the 50s sci-fi aesthetic was yeah. always where I, where I pre- present them, you know, um, they are running around making giant, you know, ants that might crush a building and <laughs> you know, disintegration rays and things like that. Um, they're Doc Brown, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of where where they live in my in my mind and in my heart. But they can be really anything that that falls within that sort of scientific. Um, I guess uh, pseudoscience isn't quite the term I'm looking for, but that science fiction sort of uh, hypertech, really hypertech, you know, really kind of like fantas- fantastical uh, right. technology. Yeah, well, I suppose being like with with technology that. In, in a modern, depending obviously what era you're sort of playing it in, but in a modern society, technology, you could sort of say, well, that magic thing that I did is a new piece of technology. And yeah, yeah sort of. That's, yeah. that's it. Yeah. And that's how a lot of coincidences uh, function. And that's where the strength of the technocracy, like, which are kind of like the enemy faction for the traditions, um, that's where the technocracy lives. <laughs> you know, is. Um, uh, uh, a black suit technocrat, um, their suit, their tie, their mirror shades, um, you know, their badge. These are all apparatus of their magic, you know, <laughs> or in their mind, they're enlightened science. They don't even call it magic, uh, but it's even though it's the same thing. Right. So if they look at you over their glasses, that's a that can be a focus for a mind effect to intimidate you or to persuade you. Things along those lines, right? Little simple things like that can even be a way to sort of focus that energy. And there's nothing more coincidental than a scary person in a suit with a badge making you feel scared, right? <laughs> like that's not going to, you know, that's not going to raise too many too much paradox. 
But, you know, a uh, uh, society of ether death ray might. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's, and that's where the big sort of divide when the society of ether were who were once part of the uh, technocracy. When they left, it was largely due to sort of differences of opinion of what should be acceptable science. Uh, with, Zach, with leaning more into the Zach rules on Twitch says NWO for life. Oh, we'll keep an eye out for him. They're they're a popular uh, convention and my personal favorite. <laughs> yeah, I must I must I like the void en- the void engineers. The void engineers are a lot of fun. Uh, I actually, uh, in addition to being a developer on Technocracy or on uh, Lore of the Traditions, I was one of the team of developers on Technocracy Reloaded, oh. and uh, the void engineers uh, were a very uh, interesting and fun problem to solve on that book because uh, because of the different metaplot toggles. Um, there are few entities in Mage that are as affected by which of those toggles you have on as the Void Engineers. Um, particularly, there's one uh, plot element called the Avatar Storm, which, if it happened, uh, it drastically changed the Void Engineers from the way they were prior um, and so basically they got written almost like two conventions uh, in that in technocracy reloaded because there was so so much difference. Um, they really go from being this like we're super serious around everybody else. And then when we get out in the void, it's like party time uh, <laughs> to at, like if the Avatar storm happened, they just turn into space like just hoorah, kill the aliens. You know, they become very militant. So it's it's an interesting uh, interesting space they occupy. And we had a little bit of that in Lore of the Traditions, uh, sp- specifically regarding the Dream Speakers, but it's a, it's much more... That event, the way the Dream Speakers are presented in Lore of the Traditions is less devastating to them in terms of their identity. It's absolutely devastating to them in terms of what they lose, Right. But in terms of, it does not shake their identity. Um, you know, and part of that is because the Dream Speaker uh, identity is so. Um, it's it, it, the the Dream Speakers are like a tradition of mages that are made from you know hundreds of groups from around the world who are all individually very community driven sort of being sandwiched together into one group that has nothing in common with one another, except that they're all community driven and not part of the other groups. (laughs) (laughs) And that all goes back to the order of Hermes, uh, trying to stuff people into boxes when they first formed the tradition, when the traditions were first formed. Yeah. Uh, uh, Traditions is more like a magical practice, associated magical practice rather than a specific belief system. Like you said, with the dream speakers, it's all about you know, almost kind of um, negotiating with spirits and have a very kind of spiritual-based focus of their particular magic rather than being a certain regional cultural identity. Right. Yeah, it's all... It, it, and and the, the blankets... And one of the things we address in Lore of the Traditions is that these blankets that were sort of assigned to the traditions when they first came together, um, many of them were de- decided through... Uh, the same sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, colonialist meddling sort of uh, politicking. Um, you know, 
that that the sleeper world was also soon to experience what with you know British expansion and all that sort of thing, right? So, like, we go back to 1460s when the Grand Convocation comes together, when the when the traditions are formed. Uh, you have different mages from around the world all come together to this magical place called Horizon, which is built in the Umbra and the spirit world off by itself. So they can throw magic around left and right. And it's, an, it's a fantastical, wonderful place. But they come together and immediately the Order of Hermes, which has already been in existence as a codified magical tradition for hundreds of years at this point, they already have their very strict hierarchies and their rules and their laws and all this has been worked out by them. So as all these other mages from different parts of the world are showing up, the Order of Hermes desperately wants to shove everybody into a neat box. Their initial pitch was, you can all come join the Order of Hermes and we'll give you a house. And they were like, everybody was like, what? No, we're equal here. Um, you know, Hermes was like, fine, if you want to feel like you're equal, we'll give you a tradition. Um, you know, <laughs> they were very... I, I often told the writers when we were working on Laura Traditions, like, if you're ever in doubt, just blame it on the Order of Hermes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they so they so as these traditions were formed, you you did have some situations, particularly the further you got away from Europe, um, where practices were sort of shoved into the same box that they didn't necessarily fit into. Um, but now here we are, 500 years of these things that existed, uh, they have grown and built sort of their own political identities, whether or not they started that way. Um, you know, over generations of people sort of adhering to these traditions. And some people have left and others have joined throughout the time. Um, the original nine traditions, two of them are, are gone. They're not part of the traditions anymore. And they have been replaced. Um, Originally, the Ali Batten were the correspondence tradition, and now it's the virtual adepts. And originally, the Solificati were the matter tradition, and now it's the Society of Ether. Um, yeah, so um, there's been a lot of a lot of history and a lot of change in there. But when you're talking about each specific tradition, they sort of all draw from kind of a geographic and philosophical and cultural origin point or origin tie but then spread out pretty broadly beyond that. You know, the Akashiana, it's Eastern philosophy, uh, and reincarnation is a core part of, of Akashic practice, right? What, but, but beyond that, it webs out into, you know, dozens of other different sort of belief systems and factions and, and structures that are supported within that. The same can be true of all the other traditions. Uh, the only real notable exception to that is the Order of Hermes, but only because it's an exception of form. The Order of Hermes has very strict, specific houses that uh, that are attached to their beliefs um, and the way they practice magic. And then there's also one house called Ex Miscellanea that is sort of where we stick everybody else who doesn't fit into the other nice, neat boxes. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, that's the basic function of how tradition works. So you've got you've got a Kickstarter on the go at the yeah. minute. Uh, what is it? What's it? So the current Kickstarter is Lore of the Traditions. Um, it's a collection that delves into 
uh, sort of a deep dive look at the history of each tradition, uh, where they came from, uh, their current state of affairs, including how different plot toggles that you might have on in your game might affect what that tradition looks like today, and sort of what's their trajectory, where are they headed, what what are they, what what, what are their goals, what are they doing next. Um, amid all of that, uh, you all. Oh, you're on mute. You're on mute. I must have bumped my, my space. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, you have additional system information that's added as well beyond that. Where So uh, some traditions will have additional rotes, which are kind of like spells. They're, they're magical effects that you learn so well that you can pr produce them reliably. Um, some have, most of them have new paradigms and instruments listed uh, for working with them. Uh, some of them have new rules, like the Order of Hermes and the Dream Speakers both have a uh, protocol of interacting with spirits is very important. So there's some rules about how that protocol can play out at the table if you want to make that, uh, uh, if you want to delve more into that, make a crunchier system to support that protocol, that's there. Uh, so it's, it's, kinda, it's basically you've got like this deep dive into the lore and then each one of them has a couple of new little tricks that you can keep at the table to uh, spice up or, or uh, enrich the, the gameplay experience, I guess. Now, I remember in the 90s, like the, um, the Mage Line had like the tradition source books where it had like a specific tradition for each source book, mm -hmm. and which were about 9,200 pages each, and yes. now you're condensing them all down into a single book. How did you condense all that information into, you know, Oh, I mean, we didn't, uh, <laughs> and, and that's and, and that's something that I think um, you know people should know going in. When our aim for creating Lord of the Traditions was to really give everyone sort of this top-down, here's the thing that we want you who are coming to Mage, the new Mage player, we want to be able to hand you this and have you read that chapter on that tradition and have a good feeling of what that tradition is about, right? And if you're a lore hound, if you're somebody who's been here since 94 playing mage, right? You're going to find things in that book that I think you will find interesting. Nice. I think you will find new hooks. I think you will find mysteries solved or at least pointed in a certain direction in that text. But I didn't want it to require your level of knowledge for someone to enjoy the book. I really want it to be something that if you sit down with somebody and you say, I'd like to play mage, you can hand them lore of the traditions and say, pick your tradition out of that. Look through those, grab the one that's most interesting to you. So, because you, you can really get a feel for who they are, what they're about, um, some of their their past, and, and addressing some of the things about their past that, you know, through the modern lens, right? How do people now in the Order of Hermes feel about the decisions the Order of Hermes made 500 years ago? Um, you know, and the general consensus is not great. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and there is, but one of the things that's very exciting about it is each one of these chapters has a real uh, energy about it, about that that future, and injects, uh, to my mind, you have the four factions in the Ascension War, and the traditions in my mind were always the the faction of hope. Yeah, they were the ones that was about you know it doesn't matter how dark it gets we we are going to be the light we we're gonna we're gonna push for a future, um, 
and I think that really is was captured very well by the authors in this book. Yeah, one thing that always kind of springs to mind when I'm talking about the World of Darkness games as a whole, it's made seems like the odd one out because mm-hmm. it's a game about hope. No matter what happens, your character has that your strength of will that they believe. No, we can be better. I can do this. And it's like, no, because they want to bring about ascension, be that themselves, their community, or the entire world. Unless you're thinking of the um, Nefandi, which wants to be completely different. But no, right. the, the core <laughs> characters, um, we believe there is a better way. Right. And I think that like, tonally within the world of darkness is fantastic, but also you need that within the world of darkness. Because you paint everything black. Right, there's everything no... Black, they can't tell any difference, but you need those spots of light. And right. the awakened in Maze of the Ascension are those points of light. Right. And I would argue that even some of the Nefandi, um, because there are there's a whole chunk of the Nefandi that really believe that um, what they are doing, their pursuit of the ultimate destruction of the universe, is akin to a mercy killing. Yeah. You know what I mean? They think they're the heroes. <laughs> you know? And, and that's one of the things I love about Mage is uh, all of everybody thinks they're the good guy. <laughs> you know? yeah. and also like you can have the like, massive philosophical discussions right about about the nature of reality and you know what is good and etc all wrapped around a very neat system in a game yeah no it's 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 brilliant stuff and and you get those you know i had a i had a long-term campaign i ran three four years uh and you know they were tradition mages and they very much disliked the technocracy and there were you know, spells and bullets and everything between the two. They had, they'd taken out each other's holdings multiple times, destroyed lives. You know, every war is hell, every little bit of war. But the most impactful moment of that campaign was, you know, four years in when they're sitting across from the technocrat in the white suit who is saying, you know, I think you've been misunderstanding us this whole time. I just want to be able to use a bathroom inside without being worrying about being eaten by a dragon. And we've created that. You know, what are you offering? Yeah. And making them think, you know, put it that put them on their heels because they're like, well, shit, what are we offering? You know, yeah. <laughs> like, what, <laughs> you know, being able to introduce those kinds of of conundrums to the players, and then. You know, Mage gives you the tool set where you can explore those to your heart's content, but you also have the fallback that you're playing someone who is so stubborn they have superpowers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, you talked about like how Lord's Editions is both accessible to new players and gran- sufficiently granular for existing players. How did you balance those two extremes? Um it wasn't easy and uh depending on who you ask we might not have uh you know i mean uh there's i i know that there are there are plenty of people who would have loved to have seen uh seen more in this book myself chief among them uh but at the end of the day we had the word count we had so the 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 way we discussed it the way that we tackled it was i sat down with each of the authors i hired extremely well was step one um, I got the best team I could I could possibly hope to assemble to work on this book. Um, and then I spoke to each of them and I said, I want you to tell this story in the voice you feel is most appropriate. I want you to prioritize what you think is it needs to be addressed from previous editions and what you think the focus needs to be going forward. And I want you to let 
the blemishes show, um, but also encapsulate the the highs and the joys that come along with this practice, right? Um, and I think they all sort of really just nailed that assignment so well. Um, and and so there wasn't a whole lot of fiddling and finagling with the with the little bits because we knew there was so much like you said each of the tradition books was like 60,000 words 100 pages something like that um and most of them had i think they all had two editions of tradition yeah first edition so, and revised edition right so you got 120,000 words on each tradition just in their tradition books never mind everywhere else where lore pops up about them right so there's no way we were going to compress that in a way that was going to make sense let alone be you know be useful to anyone so it was really just kind of like pick the things you think are important and let's focus on those things um and to that end there was there was very little like top-down dictation i did not develop this book the way i would have developed a lot of other books even there wasn't a, a very detailed outline of you're going to cover x y and z it was really a conversation with each of the um creators about like what you feel this tradition is making sure the traditions were presented in their own voice somebody can fact check me on this but i really think hiromi koto might be the first author of asian descent to work directly on the akashiana <laughs> i i look forward to reading that so i mean like as an example of like making sure that people are getting the right uh voice right you know making sure that we're uh hiring folks that are aware of these beliefs are and are and, and live within these societies uh, that some of these beliefs are drawn from so that we can really have that sort of uh, honest conversation uh, about the way the tradition has been presented and where the tradition's headed you know well, the Kickstarter seems to be going really well. Uh, uh, you've got $110,000 or 81,000 quid uh, pounds pledged so far. Probably a bit a- more. Probably a bit more by the end of this podcast because I'm literally on the Kickstarter right now. <laughs> sure hope so. uh, yeah, if anyone's over there, just feel free to pledge some stuff. Bump that up a little bit. Yeah, we had a lot of a lot of stretch goals uh, have already been unlocked and and more in the kitty. It's been really, really cool to see the response. Um, People just seem to be uh, very excited about the book. Uh, and, you know, people are, are voicing uh, their ideas about it as well, suggestions about things they would like to see or things they would, uh, recommendations for ways that some of the information is presented. And that stuff's all brilliant, too. Uh, when you back it on the Kickstarter, even at the $5 level, you get access to the uh, manuscript preview and to the feedback form. You know, so I'm encouraging people, like, if you see something there and you're like, well, it really feels like this should be covered in some way, pop a note in the feedback form. Worst case scenario, we just can't squeeze it in. Best case scenario, you point out something very obvious that I missed, which is entirely possible. <laughs> in the book, you know, it's a way to for everybody. Because, um, again, I was, um, I was really, when I was developing this, um, my mission statements were to you know, as I said before, make it accessible, make it uh, useful to the existing fan base um, and and make it fun and make it cool, and make it engaging. There were certain beats I wanted to make sure we hit, but I wasn't 
micromanaging this thing. I wasn't going in. And so it's, you know, um, there was a, a piece of feedback that was left on the Kickstarter not long ago about just, uh, hey, can you just put in a list, just a text list of the current houses of Hermes? Like, yeah, it's a great idea. Yeah, just put that <laughs> feedback form, please. Um, things like that, you know, um, because we break down like where all the changes have happened, right? We assume that the that the reader has access to 20th anniversary edition because it is a 20th anniversary edition supplement. So everything sort of goes from the writing there, right? Now, each tradition in the 20th anniversary edition core book only gets, I think, a two or three page write up. Yep. There's not much there um, for a book that's 700 pages. There's not a lot, not a lot in the. It's a beast. Thing. It's a beast of a book. It's a home defense weapon. Actually. <laughs> yeah. 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 Just throw your copy of. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, so you know, I'm assuming that anyone who picks up Lore of the Traditions has that level of knowledge. Um, so we wrote to that, uh, and you know, it, I think most. I think we most of the time we hit the mark there, and. As I said before, this text that's going out with the with the previews, uh, this is pre-edited, pre uh, pre-development cycle. Uh, so the feedback is super important because if there is something that is just like, hey, this is fundamental and I don't see it, let us know. You know, we're happy to happy to make sure that everybody's bases are covered to the best of our ability and word count. Um, you know, I can't add 33% to the word count. I wish I could. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Kickstarter is all about the stretch goals. Are there any particular stretch goals you're particularly interested in that you really want to kind of get unlocked and get working on? Oh, I mean, like, so far, everything that is unlocked uh, is extremely exciting to me. So um, there's one more stretch goal to complete out, I believe it's Faces of Magic, right? Um is, is the hundred token pack VTT token pack? Yeah. There's the VTT token pack, and then there's like Faces of Magic three. Is that what it is? So you've got uh, currently oh, I achieved a uh, uh, hundred and tenth uh, Faces of Magic. Yeah, you got Faces of Magic VTT token pack, which is your next your next stretch goal. Yep, and then the one after that, I think, is Forgotten the... Ones and Forbidden Forgot Orders. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so that so um, the Forgotten Ones, Forbidden Orders books. Uh, or book as it winds up being. Uh, when we put out these stretch goals, sometimes they wind up ultimately coming out in a slightly different form that has all the material in it. But the, 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 the theory behind those stretch goals, what those are going to be unlocking are these additional factions throughout the history of Mage. Uh, they've been referred to historically as crafts at various times, and in oh. 20th anniversary edition, they're uh, referred to as the Disparate Alliance. Um, but so these are uh, mystical orders that don't fall within the purview of the traditions. They're certainly not in a fandy and they're not marauders. Uh, so this allows for a much more granular expression of belief. A lot of these are groups that back when the grand convocation happened the order of Hermes said, well, we're going to stick everybody that's, you know, from South of here or West of here into the dream speakers. A lot of these groups went, see you later and took off and <laughs> went and continued being themselves um so all of those are getting covered in that book which is super exciting to me because um that's really where mage uh started to adopt i think anyway uh the first steps of a truly global perspective 
on on culture, right? Um, first edition mage, sure you had the Akashiana, sure you had the Dream Speakers, um, but it was all presented in a very Eurocentric sort of fashion, right? Uh, and that was due in part to it was the early '90s and the authors had a library card. There wasn't Google. There wasn't you know what I mean like. The, the 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 resources were not there that we have today to really uh, generate a, a product that has these voices active in it. Um, but yeah, uh, so when as, as the game line expanded, they started to introduce these crafts that covered some of these more uh, quote unquote niche uh, magical practices. And so the, the, seeing those get uh, a treatment similar to what Laura's Traditions is, is getting is is very exciting to me. I'm just looking at the the different pledges and stuff, and I always love like there's they're, they're, it's all gone. It says that pledge for two hundred fifty dollars, the Order of Hermes, uh, and you can supply a name for an NPC. I always love stuff like that where you can sort of uh, have your own little sort of um, your own little piece of you in in your favorite RPG book. Like I done something similar with the um, the BattleTech. Uh, recent BattleTech um Kickstarter and mm. I, I named I named a character. Uh because it's like I've totally I love that. I've been into that for years and so I've got I've got my own my own character. Yeah, that. those are super cool uh perks and and all credit to uh Onyx Path, but specifically uh James who's our Kickstarter concierge uh is just brilliant and uh just always has really good ideas and and uh, if you go through and like look at the updates in the Kickstarter, you can really see his his personality in them. Um, he's just a, a, a awesome dude on top of being very good at his job. Um, so yeah, it's the, those seeing those perks coming in and those perks all like I think like all of our premium perks on this one went like the first hour the Kickstarter was up. People yeah. were just all snatched it up. It was really cool. It was a little overwelming, like. <laughs> you know, like are, you, are, are we sure this is what's going on but um you know no, mage fans are amazing um oh, and is, they've shown really good support how how many uh, obviously onyx path it says they created nine uh have you been party to many of these or is this your first um, one for them this is my well onyx path has done a lot more than nine kickstarters yeah um they uh the, the onyx path profile is a is a is a new kickstarter newer kickstarter profile oh, okay. um i've been involved directly in four or five kickstarters in like a development role i think and then i've been in a writer's role on more but um how have you found because like i i'm a bit of a kickstarter fiend um mm. I, to the point where my new year's resolution is to stop backing kickstarters because i'm just <laughs> i just like stuff just turns up on my door and i'm like what the hell is this and i'm like oh crap i ordered that three years ago and it's just turned up <laughs> <laughs> it just turns up in this huge box and i'm not the sort of guy when i do my kickstarters to go for the basic i'm the i'm like i go to the scroll to the bottom all in you know 300 quid 300 dollars. i'll have that please and then these this big box of stuff just turns up to your door three or four years later how do you find sort of um delays and stuff because one thing that 
I've, I, I appreciate all Kickstarters take time, but I've had some recently that have taken, that have been delayed to the point of being ridiculous. Like that uh, Airflix one, Pete, that turned yeah. up recently. That took four years. And I was oh, just yeah. like... I mean, and, well, and COVID's not doing anybody any favors with that um, for, for certain. And you know, Brexit's even in the UK as well. Everything is... Right, exactly. Everything is kind of screwed up on top of the normal level of... Of frustrations with that and the short answer to that honestly is i don't personally sweat it too much um because i am at the end of the day i'm a freelancer i'm a cog in the machine over at onyx path um uh that's not my department um i let james uh lose the hair over that and i <laughs> i lose my hair over uh the text of the books uh the the things that i do to try to mitigate that on my end are the things that I have control over. Right. So, um, when I'm developing a book, I try to set relatively short deadlines for text. Um, I try to deliver early. I try, and this is all just kind of more personal work ethic stuff, but I think it's important. Um, not only for, uh, just my role at Onyx path, but, uh, just in general, important advice for somebody who's going, looking into like doing a Kickstarter or something like that is to sort of set realistic goals, but then to the best of your physical and mental ability, try to exceed those. Right. And maybe you don't hit all of them. Maybe you shoot for the stars and land on the moon once in a while, but, um, it's, if you can deliver things, deliver what you can early, Make sure it's done right, you know, make sure it's quality, but deliver what you can early and that helps pad things out for later um, delays. The other thing is Onyx Path has been doing this long enough and are familiar enough with the process. They're very good at baking in uh, padding into their Kickstarters so that uh, and, and, and the simple reality, well, it's so that if something like, say, a global pandemic hits. Um, we're not, we're still not delivering books late. Um, and historically for the last several Kickstarters, most of those have been delivered significantly early, uh, because we would rather deliver early and surprise you and knock your socks off. Hey, I wasn't expecting this for another year. than ha- get a bunch of emails going, where's this book you promised us four years ago? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so, <laughs> so the aim is to ever be sort of under promise over deliver is kind of the yeah i have to say when it comes to sort of um literature and books and things like that the kickstarters i've backed have either turned up early or um pretty much on time yeah Uh, board games tend to be sort of generally a year late uh sometimes the the odd one is very late uh technology i have not had one technology kickstarter that hasn't gone over by two or three years and uh, uh, yeah i've had to try and get refunds on a couple of them because they're just a nightmare i suppose it also helps that because like obviously these are books they can be delivered as pdfs in advance so at least the backers have the pdf the finished pdf and the books arrives when it arrives subject to global shipping right and and there's uh when you have like stretch goals for example so all those stretch goals that are listed on there um, when you back at the level that gets you the core PDF, you're getting all those stretch goals. And so when those are ready in PDF, um, those will go out to the backers generally first 
and the backers get a chance to give an errata pass on it. So they get to look through it and go, oh, hey, this reads funny, or oh, hey, um, it wouldn't be cool if X, Y, Z, or this rule isn't clear. So they get to kind of be involved in that last pass of, of creating the book too, which is neat. Um, so they're getting access to it also before uh, it goes available to the public because we do that bit and then we release it once that process is done we release it to the public. So you've got, you've generally got a PDF for several weeks prior to it going out, like through drive-through, for example. How, how do you find sort of, um, cause right, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Warhammer sort of nerd. So I'm used to getting a book and then there being a million different changes needed through erratas and facts, um, you know, within, within months cause things are broken. Um, are you quite uh are you quite sort of vigilant about sort of how your your books are released and how the the mechanics work? Absolutely, and that's part of why we do the um errata process the way that we do it so that people can get those early digital editions. You know, our supporters can get the early digital editions. They get to uh be involved with that process and give us that valuable feedback before we are setting anything in stone as it were. Um, and of course, uh, Gaiman's law holds true. I don't know if you've heard this. It's a, a, a law of physics proposed by Neil Gaiman that if you write a book, no matter how many editors and, and proofreaders work on it, no matter how strenuous you are as you're looking it through, you will undoubtedly open the first copy of that book that is sent to you directly to a typo. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I, mean, I mean that is unfortunately to a degree the nature of of publishing um and we don't generally issue a whole lot of like errata documents or faqs unless something is really broken right unless something's not working um we will uh happily answer questions uh you can tweet at onyx path uh, if you have uh, like a systems question, most time we're able to get an answer to you that way. Uh, we have a very active Discord community where people are discussing rules all the time, and everyone. And if there is a significant confusion that we're seeing in that, occasionally a developer will pop in and say, "Oh, here's what that rule means," or "Here's how that rule probably should read," or "Here's where we made that mistake." Oops, because we do. We're human. Um, above and beyond that, we actually just started a new show. This is getting a little bit off of the mage topic, but um, Onyx Path's house system, the Story Path system, which runs uh, Trinity Continuum and Scion and uh, Dystopia Rising Evolution, they came from beneath the sea. All those games run on that system. And we've started now a bi-weekly show uh, on our Twitch channel on Tuesdays at noon Eastern. Um, where Eddie Webb and Danielle Lazan get together. Uh, it's called Lunch and Crunch, and they just get together over the course of lunch break, and they talk about the mechanics of the story path system, why certain decisions were made, what we might do differently if we were to, if we were to go back and revisit it, uh, tips and tricks for how to employ, employ these systems at your table. So just having that sort of audience engagement too, um, you know, trying to make sure that we are uh, discovering if there's issues out there in the wild and responding to them in some fashion or another, uh, if you know they they're severe enough to warrant a response. 
Sounds cool. Okay. Yeah. Um, what does May's 20th anniversary edition have planned for the future? Because I mean, like, you know, the, the support for this uh, Kickstarter has been fantastic. So obviously, there's a lot of um, like you know, a lot of love for the game, and I say it's like one thing as well is with uh, Paradox have announced like you know, their third game, their third fifth edition is going to be Hunter. I was expecting it to be Mage, but no, it's going to be Hunter. So obviously, they've got there's kind of the spec the scope time wise to kind of sure. listen, listen anyone. has there anything more planned for mage the reality of the situation is is that i those decisions are made at a higher pay pay grade than i currently employ yeah, um, <laughs> uh, i i can i can tell you this much um i can tell you that we have uh some some stretch goals that we haven't unlocked yet on lore that i would love to see get unlocked um, there's more beyond what's listed. I'll put it oh. that. Um, so there's 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 capacity for growth still, uh, if we can get over these next few stretch goals. And then it's it's a, it's a lot. This Kickstarter has has been great, and it's been going like gangbusters. And people's support has been amazing and wonderful. Um, and I really would love to see it grow bigger. And we've still got a little bit of time. We're like I think 10, 11 days left. Um, so it, there's a lot of places it could go. Um, anything beyond what's announced during this Kickstarter, uh, is outside of my purview. I can only say that I would be thrilled to be involved in it should it manifest. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I think one of the best, um, supplements for the X20 line, the 20th anniversary edition line for all of them, uh, was, was, was Beckett's Jihad Diary for mm. Vampire. Yes. Would something like that be applicable for Mage, given all the different future fates and the toggles? You know, it's something that we've. Uh, again, I don't want to go too like far out of yeah. like my my lane, but I mean, it's an idea that has been discussed. I'll put it that way, uh, just in terms of like this would be a cool thing to do. Yes, um, I don't like taking off my development hat and just sitting here as a Mage fan. I don't know the logistics of what that would be above and beyond all the publishing logistics because you've yeah. got all these future fates, right? Um, so, not uh, I'd be I'd be interested to see how that would come together if it were to. Um, do I think it's a it's possible? Sure. Um, I think it would require some pretty crafty approaches because I don't think you'd be able to tackle it in quite the same vein as Beckett's Jihad Diary, you'd have yeah. to, I think you'd have to take a slightly different tack with it. Um, what that tack may be, I, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I know that uh, obviously Mage fans love the lore, right? Uh, they're, they're showing as much with their support, um, which is great. And, and I think... You will be primed for similar collections of, of information and similar hooks and similar utility at the table between lore of traditions and um, the uh, forgotten and forbidden stretch goal books. Because I think that they're while it's structured differently, I believe that 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 the material in those is covering a lot of the same ground that Beckett's Jihad Diary covered, right? Yeah. Uh, similar with Apocalyptic Record, which we just uh, had the Kickstarter for not that long ago. Uh, Apocalyptic Record, um, 
does for Werewolf 20 a lot of what Beckett's Jihad Diary did for Vampire 20. But the information is presented in a different fashion. It's a different line, different needs, right? Um, so I think if you're hungry for that kind of content, this sort of plot hook heavy, uh, meta plot referential content, um, I think there that you will find it peppered through Lore of the Traditions and Forgotten and Forbidden. Just in a not if you if you if you're coming in expecting it to look like Beckett's Jihad Diary. Yeah, you- I think you would be a little, a little disappointed. But I think if you look, you'll find those similar beats are being struck. Just so the, the execution and the structure is different, but the, essentially the result is basically the same plot hooks and ideas of the game moving forward. Right. You're, having, you're getting these these moments. They're just yeah. presented to you in a, in a slightly different... You know, because Becca's Jihad Diary is incredible for, for what it is... Uh, designed to be which is kind of this 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 dense lore compilation this almost like who's who and what's what of of vampire the masquerade right um and that was very much the mission statement that hit it 100 percent um these are uh, the the needs of the lines are a little different so the mission the core mission statements are a little different on the books um but i think they both do fill a similar role yeah. One of my favourite things in running a game of Mage is like kind of watching the player characters try to um, integrate their different belief, their characters' different belief systems in with each other. So that so they kind of effectively combine their um, routes t- together mm-hmm. and all, all, all these complement each other. But the hardest part is actually getting these characters all together in, in the first place when they have so many different, you know disparate um backgrounds just wondered like from yourself as a developer of which how do you kind of overcome that initial hurdle well i mean there's a couple of uh i guess um mechanisms that are built into the setting that uh help lay that groundwork the idea of the traditions as being this group of Disparate will workers from around the globe working together for common cause. Um, that's one way to tackle it, uh, is the idea that all of your mentors, the people you've learned your magic from, have decided that you should all play together and they send you off to be your own group, right? That's one way to tackle it. Um, you can do a thing where uh, I find geography is often a very, very uh, easy way to do it, honestly, um, by saying, you know, mages are rare. Um, there's a couple places in various books that have come out where they've given kind of a a ratio. I don't like doing that because I don't like pigeonholing anything that doesn't have to be pigeonholed for a storyteller. You know what I mean? I, w- I want you to decide how common awakening really is in your world. Um but the, all the sources agree it's not particularly common. Um, you have to have a certain amount of uh, spiritual oomph to be able to awaken. Most people just can't. Um, so it may be a simple matter of, you know, you're in Akron, Ohio, and there's three other mages there. Those are your friends. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? And that's how you wind up falling together 
I'm also a, a big fan. One of the things about magic is the more you know, the more you notice. Um, as your knowledge of the spheres becomes greater, your perceptions of those aspects of reality becomes greater. So I, I like the hook. Um, in fact, I'll be using it in actual play fairly soon. Um, <laughs> the hook of, you notice this strange thing. And so does that person that's over there, and so does that person that's over there. Now you've all showed up at the strange thing. Now now you have the basis for working together. Um, so that's always a, a good, easy hook to get these people that otherwise maybe wouldn't have any reason to get along. Um, you know, and, and you look at some of the traditions, if you go into the lore in, like the Euthanatos and the Kashiana have a bloody, violent history with one another. Oh, the Masasa War. Yeah, those two have fought for generations. And because they're both reincarnation-heavy traditions, you might have a mage, that a starting mage today and a, that's in the Euthanatos, and a starting mage today that's in the Akashiana, who both remember all the times they've killed each other on the battlefield. You know? <laughs> so. but, but, that, uh, but that also makes great role-play material. Right. Like, yeah. When you, you got to work together, but he killed you the last time you saw him. Right. <laughs> right. And now I've got to find a way to make a, a peace with this person. Yeah. So, like, I said, one of the favorite um, things about Mage is that, you know, this is a game you could literally not roll one dice in a session. Oh, absolutely. And um, but because it just purely like focuses on role play and discussion and interaction, and like I say, it's just you don't need to roll dice because you just say, okay, I do this. Okay, how do you do that? Great, excellent, and it moves forward because like, it's very almost discussion based, as in like you know, negotiation based, where you, like where you kind of justifying your your the routes in your spheres, and then yeah, back and forth, which you, you don't get that so much because. Mage is a very flexible game. Oh, absolutely! But by the yeah. nature of the, the the subjective nature of reality in the game, it's like it is you know subjective. So, so you basically yeah. come down to arguing. Well, I think reality should be like this, but no, I think it like, should be like that. Oh yeah, some of my some of my fondest memories of playing Mage uh, was I had a very large group that was nine players, oh. uh, one of every tradition, and oh. we would meet weekly in a Denny's. And some of my favorite memories are just sitting in that Denny's listening to nine people have 12 opinions about a problem and just watching them go about it. You know what I mean? Just <laughs> I'm, I, I've run a mage for four players, and that was qu- quite heavy because I had a, um, a Cult of Tibet to see, uh, Order of Hermes, and oh, yeah, an Etherite, so Society of Etherite, and um, an orphan. And just had them having arguments about the best way to do something. And I was just sitting there. So, but nine players, that was must have been... Uh, it, was, it was a trip. And, and seeing some of the, the... These players were all very good at um, just inhabiting their characters and really, and really got into it pretty early on in the campaign. So seeing how some of the alliances and friendships that built within that larger group uh, and the way that those sort of defied expectations in some ways and were very, like, let's go against the grain of the stereotype. The two closest members of that group, bar none, 
with a celestial chorus and the dream speaker and everybody else at the table just thought that was hilarious because <laughs> they because they were like from a traditions perspective you two might not especially this was an earlier perception of the you know in the earlier editions um the celestial chorus was much more uh dogmatic than they are now yeah. uh in terms of monotheism so they played off that uh in in their relationship is uh very much from a point of we both have strong faith that's our common bond doesn't matter what that faith is in mm -hmm. we both believe strongly in these things and and we respect that in each other and that's where their friendship stemmed from but they were also just constantly like cracking jokes with one another and they were kind of their own little subgroup in the larger group and it was just very funny to me to witness that I like how the Celestial Chorus have developed over time because like I say originally they were very dogmatic very kind of rigid but now the kind of much more things as long as you believe in one the one the one of the one of the many faces of, of god whatever that may be as long as you believe in a singular entity thing what have you then you are part of the celestial chorus so literally you could have um a minister of the church elvis who who you know completely believes that elvis is his you no know, right. he believes in the power <laughs> but no like for whatever reason um he just believes in the power of Elvis. They would accept him because he believes in the one, which in his case is Elvis. Right. And <laughs> and you have, and one of the things that I love uh, what Terry did with that chapter in Lore of the Traditions, uh, one of the things that you see happen in the recent developments is that there's sort of a top-down reorganization of the Celestial Chorus that's introduced in this book. And... A lot of it starts, it's really founded on their role within the community, right? Oh, nice. Um, the idea of, of, you know, church and religion being its best when it is helping people. Um, and, and so being more community oriented, part of that is everybody's got to pay their dues in terms of like um, the sort of the, the, the different chantries out there are all sort of pooling their tasks and their magical resources, their financial resources, whatever. And it all sort of flows up into the main body of the chorus for then the chorus to redistribute by need, right? But there's also sort of this top-down uh, sort of decision that you're welcome here. All notes in the chorus are valid, um, and we will find a way to harmonize with you so long as you can adhere to these tenets of existence, none of which is, I don't believe, like a statement about the nature of the one or a statement about, you know, it's all very anti-dogmatic. It's all very community-driven and very, like, the faith is what matters, but the acts of service are, are what makes us special. Um, and there are some factions that left because of that because what do you mean you're going to let these people in you know <laughs> well you can't have them in us well okay then you are going to have to go because these are the way this way it's going to be you know um and it was a very cool it's a very cool way of breaking that down and explaining that uh and from a systems perspective that chapter also contains uh basically the technocracy as a method for requisitioning equipment and magical resources uh you know through bureaucracy the Celestial Chorus has a similar thing, you know, because they have all these connected churches. It's almost like a relic loan program <laughs> that you can buy, you know, back background dots in where you can get access to tasks or access to magical items. You can fill out, you know, your the same paperwork and send it up the church hierarchy. 
you know, to get the things that you might need for your practice. So that was the, a holy, really cool. ha- the holy hand grenade of Antioch. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. why, why are you requisitioning the holy hand grenade? Well, there's a, there's this rabbit. There's this rabbit. Uh, right? <laughs> it's a really bad rabbit problem. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's the that that was a cool thing to see, and that was all. Uh, Terry was like, "Can I do this?" And I was like, "Yeah, let's do it." Um, so yeah, it was, it's really fun. Now, I'm really looking forward to seeing what the Akashiana are like. Because, I, I mean, uh, I, I have a background in Kung Fu. Um, I've uh, learned Shaolin Kung Fu when, when I was a student. And then now I've gone, after had a hiatus, I met my now wife, got married, moved house, had children. So that was something I dropped. So now I'm going back to Kung Fu and um, learning Wu-Tang Kung, Kung Fu in Derby. And so I'm really looking forward to see what the Akashiana are like, because I, I love that tradition, because I, I love Kung Fu. That's fair. Um, mm. And it was it was very cool to see. Uh, Hiromi gave so much thought to um, linguistics and the nature of reincarnation in in their approach to that chapter. Um, and it's, it's, it really does an excellent job, I think, of, of laying that spiritual focus for the Akashiana, the reasons behind why they do what they do, making it inclusive and welcoming and making it make sense for a tradition of people who have repeatedly, uh, reincarnated been every gender expression under the sun throughout their various lives and what does that what how does that manifest in a modern person right what's what's that like when you've lived every walk of life that can be lived what sort of perspectives does that lead to sort of and sort of re-examining that core question that was asked way back in the day with the akashiana about you know you've always had this you're progressing towards something. The basic idea of reincarnation being that you're progressing towards a higher self. You're moving towards a better you. Um, but this this engages that in a much more practical, much more well-informed, much more, um, I guess, modern, for lack of a better word, context. And I think it's really cool um, to see that done there. Also, there was a lot of linguistic stuff uh, in the earlier editions <clears throat> that uh, Hiromi uh, just cleaned up because there were like not only were there titles in Chinese, but and then in they were in different three different kinds of Chinese, so none of them mm. even agreed with one another. <laughs> okay, um, and there were there were a lot of gendered terms that uh, because those dialects of Chinese are all gendered. Yeah. So Japanese was sort of used as a new sort of silo for all of the um like ranks and the relationships and things like that. And I just think that, that was a really good call. Um because it takes away some of that baggage of, you know, um of earlier presentations that maybe weren't as well informed as current presentation. Yeah. That makes sense, but it's it's a delightful, brilliant read. I I I look forward to hearing your thoughts on it. I would look forward to reading it because yeah, it's a massive fan of playing the Akashiana. Because like I just 
engage kung fu brain and away you go but no it's, and and also like look, i just i have an absolute fascination with um uh, chinese culture and like one day i would love to go to china and visit the place myself and like look, i have an absolute fascination with Taoism. um i've been reading about and learning about it for 20 plus years and it's hard to say like i'm practicing Taoist, but you know it's kind of i like the i like the philosophies behind it and i can appreciate where they're coming from so I have a deep fascination with the area and the culture, so yeah, I'm really looking forward to reading about them. Cool. Well, yeah, I think you'll I think you'll enjoy it quite a bit. Uh, it's a it's a really fun read. There's a lot of a lot of neat stuff in that chapter. I mean, all the chapters. Um, I would be very very hard pressed to pick like a favorite chapter because they're all done so well. They're all so focused on um, sort of tackling that traditions. Um, expectations and where to uh, steer into them and where to pull back on them and where there's internal strife around them. The Cult of Ecstasy chapter springs to mind um, in terms of like internal strife. Yeah. Um, because you have uh, several people in the Cult of Ecstasy, the majority of the Cult of Ecstasy uh, wants to move, like for example, move away from calling themselves the Cult of Ecstasy, but also. Um, you know, get away from the um, get a, away from the just sex, drugs, and rock and roll image, right? Yeah. But there are also members of the cult that are 100% like, what are you talking about? Why would you put those boundaries on me, man? You know? <laughs> yeah. It's and so seeing that. Yeah, achieving a, a thematic balance, essentially. Right. And so seeing those. Uh, interior strifes too is is fun watching those buttheads. Um, yeah, I mean, there's just there's I could I could go on and on and on about the content. Um, my being, my little mind is blown. Uh, <laughs> I'm just sitting here going, what? <laughs> it's so in depth. It's, it's like yeah. I find it very amazing. Uh, it's just like the way you talk about it. Like it's it's actual history. It's actual. You know, it's so vivid. You know, the way you talk about it, it's amazing to listen to. Um, but yeah, my, my head's completely blown. I'm just like, whoa. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, you know, and this is a game that's got a rich uh, history itself. But it, and it was from first edition, Mage was created by people who had a deep respect for what they were creating. They maybe didn't always have the best tools um, at the time, right? And we live in a world now where we have instantaneous global communication so we can get perspective on cultures that was just not there in those days. Um, but now we have that perspective and there's no reason not to employ it wherever possible. Um, so it's really cool to me as a fan who's been there since that first edition book that my, my when it was introduced to me in high school, my friend handed me this and he said, this is Mage. Be mindful. It reads not only in circles, but it reads in misleading circles, and that and that was very true of the first edition book. <laughs> but but seeing it grow from that world and 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 flesh out and become this world that it's become now, um, it's it it, it it it's moving, uh, and it's an incredible honor to be able to be a part of that process. Um, it's a definitely 
16-year-old me is incredibly jealous. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the uh, uh, the um, the blurb for Mage the Ascension that says, In 1993, a game came along that changed gaming. It was big, epic, and compu- confusing as hell. It <laughs> dared folks to think outside the box, to not simply throw fireballs, but to really think about how and why we do the things we do. Mage challenges people to make a difference in their world, and now more than ever, that challenge stands. Uh, against the epic tapestry of an Ascension War, Mage the Ascension uh, then and now features architects and reality locked in a, uh, a deadly fight to see whose future will prevail. But within that some uh, sometimes cosmic scope, Madge, uh, sorry, Mage asks uh, an intimate question. If you had the power of a god, what would you do with it? And what would it do with you? Well, fireballs. <laughs> yeah, because, who doesn't want to throw a fireball? Oh, well, yeah. well, Pete, as we know from our Dungeons and Dragons experience, fireballs can nearly TKP the uh, sort of completely kill the party. So, you know, you have to be careful with that sort of things. So, <laughs> see, that's the nice thing about about true magic of a mage is you can do things like shape your fireball so it's not hitting your friends. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Well, um, it's yeah. Well, I, my, my little mind is completely blown. It's been absolutely amazing listening to you sort of uh, talk about this. Um, fully, um, I'm bought into it myself now. Uh, Pete, you're going to have to sort something at some point. I think. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be an absolute pleasure. Well, um, yeah, absolutely. You, you should definitely play it. And if you have seat, if you have a seat at your table, I'm always stuck on the other side of the GM screen. So if you ever run a one shot and. You need somebody to show up and play a mage. I'm happy to do this. Ooh, okay. Oh, sweet. Sounds good. Okay, that that's too good an opportunity. <laughs> there you go, Pete. Next shot. Um, so the lore of the traditions for the mage 20th anniversary TTRPG is currently on Kickstarter. Uh, you got 10 days to go. Uh, it's doing very well, but obviously there's a few other ki- a few other perks that could be unlocked. And people... more to come. There's yeah. a more to come, which sound really good. So come on, guys. Yeah. If you it, stick guys. your hands in your pockets and uh, get uh, get backing, get backing. yeah, I would, I would love nothing more than to start off next week announcing some new stretch goals. That would be that would be perfect for me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Um, okay, well, uh, that's been great. Um, thank you very much, uh, Travis. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, super Thanks interesting, and uh, I look forward to playing Mage with you sometime. Likewise, let me know. Yeah. Let's make it happen. All right, for me, uh, I've been Matt Geary. Uh, with me has been Peter Ray Allison. Good night, everyone. And our special guest tonight, Travis Legg. Thanks again for having me. It's been a blast. Cheers, guys. Bye. Bye.